Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris Fafalius, and I'm the producer of Chris Makes a Podcast and the host of the One Hit Thunder Podcast. And I'm Matt Kelly, host of Horror Movie Night and the producer slash the head of content for the Geekscape Podcasting Network. Between the two of us, we have, believe it or not, 25 years of podcasting experience, and we want to help you start your own podcast. We know podcasting, and we want to share that knowledge with you. So whether you're new to podcasting or you want some feedback on your currently active podcast, we want to help. Or perhaps you're just overwhelmed with all of the editing work. Well, we can help you with that also. You can check out our website at weknowpodcasting.com for more information. We're excited to help your podcasting dreams become a reality. Hey everybody, today's guest is my friend Jim Adkins, lead guitarist and vocalist for the Mesa, Arizona rock band, Jimmy Eat World. Jim and I break down the writing, recording, release, and inspiration behind their smash hit single, The Middle, taken from the 2001 album, Bleed American. We take a trip down memory lane to our humble beginnings, as both of our bands were signed to Capitol Records around the same time in the mid-1990s. In a true rags to riches story, Jim shares how the band was basically invisible while at Capitol Records which eventually led to them being dropped by the label. Not to be deterred, they struck out on their own and fully self-financed and recorded an album that wound up being their breakout moment. And Jim also shed some interesting light on what it's like to be in a band that went from general obscurity to being thrust into the mainstream from one album to the next. For all this and a whole lot more, stick around. This is a good one. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. You know, Jim, I was trying to think of how I'm going to set this one up today. There's so much to talk about. Uh, I just want to give a little bit of history of Jimmy Eat World. They were the band just before us that the A&R person at Capitol Records, Craig Aronson, signed. Uh, you guys would have gotten signed probably sometime early to mid-95, I'm thinking. For some reason, I thought you guys, he, he, he signed you guys before us. Did he? We were signed. It was, it was, it was right around the same time, if, if it was us or you, I don't know, but it was, yeah. Yeah. 94, 95. Right, right. And there was a scout there named Lauren Israel. Lauren was right underneath Craig. And uh, Lauren and Craig just could not sing your praises enough. They just, as you know, they were your biggest biggest fans ever in the world. And if everybody at Capitol believed in you as they did, uh, I, I think, uh, and even us, Les and Jake, I think we, we both would have sold a lot more records there. But I think we were a little lower, lower rung there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky thing, man. Like it takes more than the college department being all in. To make anything happen at a big label, you know, like we had our core team of people that that got it or at least were giving us a chance. Mm-hmm. But 
when it comes down to it, it's like unless you're moving thirty thousand records a week, like it's next alt rock band up, right? Right after that, and, and I never realized it at the time because when when you're in the middle of the thick of things, you 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 have to reflect on it later. I just think, and I I mean this with complete sincerity. You guys were just so ahead of your time, your sound. I remember coming back to Gainesville and I was out drinking one night somewhere and Chuck Reagan, this must have been, I think it was, it might have even been before Clarity. I know Static Prevails was out, obviously. So it was probably between that and Clarity and I'm at a bar and Chuck Reagan comes about and he's like, dude, do you, do you know the Jimmy Eat World guys? <laughs> That's my Chuck impression. <laughs> That's your Chuck, <laughs> dude. Dude, you know the Jimmy World guys? I'm like, yeah. He's, he's like, the, the, you guys are like the, with the same A and R guy. He's like freaking out, and I'm like, and I'm thinking, Hot Water at that point was really gruffy, and you guys were a little more polished. And I was thinking, what what's going on here? He saw, he just loved your band. He's, I remember that night him just going on and on and on, and it was just you guys were the critics, darlings. Everybody loved you, and here you had Capital. I remember them trying to send you out on tours. They were trying to lump you in with a pop punk thing and it just you know very few people got you i sort of got the impression i was talking with the with our drummer about this the other day when you're working with a bigger label i feel like there's 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 sort of two things you're fighting against there's what your present marketability is and then what they think you're going to turn into <laughs> or maybe what they think they can steer you into and when we started working with capital and craig aronson and lauren we were a lot faster. We were a lot more Southern California pop punk vibe is kind of more of what we were doing. And I wonder about that. Like if that's what Craig. Well, I still have I still have the first record. I think it was was it called Wooden Nickel uh, Recordings? Oh, gosh. Was that our blue nickel? Wooden nickel? <laughs> Wooden blue records was was the comp- was my roommate's label. Yeah. OK. Yeah. But I mean, like so. So we got signed because of that stuff. And then we we handed them like clarity, <laughs> which is not that, you know, it's kind of like it's moving in a direction. I don't I have no idea what they thought <laughs> we handed it in, but no one got it. Well, like, so, like I said, from the self-titled or the first record you put out to uh, Static Prevails to Clarity, just the evolution of the band, how you guys matured as songwriters. It was incredible. I don't know if you remember. I definitely remember talking to Tom and Zach and hanging out. I was behind the glass at Sound City when you guys were cutting Clarity. That probably would have been the summer. Oh, uh, no way. Yeah, yeah. We were out there, I think, mixing a record or something, and Craig took us down there, and that was the first and only time. I remember walking through the lobby and just being enamored by Tom Petty and Rat, you know, platinum albums hanging on the wall. Just thought that was the, thought that was the Oh, I know. The coolest thing, but uh, yeah, to- totally remember that. And I have always loved an amazing success story. And you know, you guys get dropped by Capital. And again, like I said, you, you know, I, I don't know what the term is exactly. Critics, darlings, you just the critics loved you. The fans that you had loved you. And there, it just there's just momentum building. And you guys struck out on your own and said, "We're going to make a record with no label." You enlisted Mark Trombino, who had been with you for a couple records at that point. Mark decided to, to, from what I understand, work with you pro bono, went in, you guys made this record, and no one could accuse you of, of, of selling out. You didn't have a label to sell out to. And I read online, I don't know if it's true or not, I want to get it from you, that you kind of wanted to take it back a little bit uh, for Bleed American. You know, you, you were getting these crazy compositions. You know, you had Goodbye Sky Harbor, a 16-minute song on, on Clarity, and you were kind of stepping back a little bit and trying to write, I guess, maybe a little more in simpler terms. Is that correct? You're always going to be, you're going to be hyper aware of what you just did so that you don't repeat what you just did. 
and Clarity being a pretty involved studio creation album. I mean, there's there's some straight ahead rock songs on it, but we really threw out the idea that this has to be repeatable in a live situation or we can't make creative choices because we'll never be able to recreate it live, you know, mm-hmm. like that kind of thinking. And that led to a lot of experimentation, you know, like we rented timpani one day and that was weird, <laughs> but fun. And and so like going in and make Bleed American or actually, you know, working up to make Bleed American where we were writing material for it, the desire not to repeat what we just did with Clarity. But then there was also a lot of gigs like we toured a lot, probably more than we ever had up until that point. So, you know, just playing as a two guitar, bass, drums, two vocals band, I think fed into some of the ideas that we came up with just because those are the restrictions that you're thinking in, Mm -hmm. you know, playing so many shows just as a, as a group. Well, and Clarity, you know, there's a lot of bands that would have went the other way. They would have went even more grandiose. Hey, we got to get bigger. It's got to be crazier. And, and the fact that you guys pulled it back was, I think, also a sign of, you know, maturity. It was being able to say, hey, you know, we made that record. You know, maybe it can, maybe it can be this. We, don't, we can't really go bigger than that record. How are we going to pull it off live? I mean, because there was some, I, I'll use the word again, grandiose compositions on Clarity. I think we've just figured out how to play some of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we've just figured it out. Like, oh, man, cool. If I do this, it works. We can do it. Yeah, I've talked about it on the show before where you go record a record and then you you get the rehearsal room. You're like, hey, let's learn this one. You have to learn the songs that you or, you know, figure out what parts you're going to do. Yeah, you have to learn the songs again. It's like you do the there's the demo and then there is the band meeting of like pre-production where you decide like, what else could we do with this? And then you make the song, you record it, you put all the all the extra stuff is in there. And then you have another band meeting of like, Okay, how are we going to do this? <laughs> exactly. And if if you're a group like us, like years go by before you have another band meeting about that to reassess what it is you could do. Sure. So it's like kind of always an evolving thing, or it can be anyway. Absolutely. So, you know, Clarity was released February 23rd of 1999. The album was recorded the previous summer, May and June of 98. Bleed American was released on July 24th, 2001. And I have to ask my producer, Chris, uh, I'm going to read his exact, uh, <laughs> exactly what he wrote here in my notes, because uh, I think this is interesting and we should talk about it now. Uh, he wrote, ask Jim about this. I was in college when this album came out. I remember he talked about Bleed American. I remember that before the album was released, all of the demos of the songs leaked onto Napster and LimeWire. My friends and I all loved the whole album before it was even out or even heard. Any of the actual- LimeWire. Re- <laughs> any of the actual recordings. Was this done intentionally or did someone steal the demos and leak them intentionally? It definitely worked in getting everyone excited about the album. And if they decided to do that on your own, it was genius. So did you do that, Jim, or did someone uh, pirate your stuff? Yeah, no, that was that was an internal decision to put up demos on the Internet as it existed then. No kidding. Yeah, because we uh, when we were touring on Static Prevails and Clarity, We were basically the international distributor of our record because the sister labels around the world weren't interested in putting out our record because we'd only sold like 5,000 copies total of both records. So it wasn't like we were on nobody's radar. Yeah. But we really wanted to play in other places in the world. So what we did is we basically just, um, you know, wholesale bought our CDs from Capital Mm -hmm. and then shipped them to Germany where we had a connection with a an independent record store over there in Cologne. And through them, we got <laughs> we got indie distribution 
around Germany, shipping like, us buying our records wholesale, shipping them to Germany, and then selling them over there. So like on our first gig in Germany, we had like 400 kids there in Cologne, and which, which is incredible, which is nuts. Yes, yeah. yeah. So we thought like, okay, what else could we do to kind of um, move this along? Because we don't have a record label. The record, the, the labels that own this record aren't interested in putting it out. So we thought, let's put some of these demos up on Napster and see if that gets us more people at the shows. Yeah. And it did. Like there was, I met kids in Germany who had heard like the Sweetness demo. Yeah. Because we had a pretty good recording. We had a pretty good demo of that before we, we made Bleed American. And um, yeah, people were into it. Uh, well, I mean, Chris, it was cool. Chris remembered 20 years later. It, was, it obviously impacted him and a lot of his friends, which is super cool. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago that there was a ton of touring. And I remember you guys were out there uh, between uh, 99, the release of Clarity, and Bleed American, which was released uh, the 24th of July, 2001. Do you remember uh, when you wrote The Middle? Yeah, I remember when The Middle started. I was living in Tempe, kind of by the college. Mm -hmm. I had our drummer Zach's old drum set, like that we recorded our first crappy, crappy, like when I used to, when I used to come over to his place and jam like Metallica songs when we were in seventh grade, <laughs> I bought that kit off of him because I was, you know, drums are fun, man. I wanted a drum set, so... I had the drum set set up in my crappy room and I had like a little Mackie 16 channel mixer that's still around here somewhere. Oh, there it is. <laughs> I still have it. And basically I had my own little, that was my demo set up with, with one of these Tascam DA 38s that happens to be. Oh, I can, I remember. Unearthed I, there. I remember. Yeah. So I had eight, I had basically a digital eight track, a pretty nice digital eight track, like bedroom setup. I can't remember exactly what, I can't exactly remember. I think basic, I think it might've started off with a drum beat. I think I might have started off with like a the the you wreck me kind of drum beat. Okay. <laughs> Just because that's like one of the two things I could play. Yeah. And then I put that down and then I, you know, start playing guitar along with it. And it's such a simple drum beat that that kind of led to the the three note progression <laughs> that that doesn't really change. Actually, there's four there's, there's four there's four notes in the in the progression for the song. But for the most of it, it's only three. Well, again, I, you know, I could see if you guys were still on Capitol or on some label and, and, and fans could cry at, you know, at that point, they love the word sellout or, oh, this is a pop song. But here you guys were just making a record. And, and when you wrote this, did you realize it was, I mean, compared to where you had just come from with Clarity and how you guys were just growing as a band with these compositions, did you feel that this was kind of stripped back? And what did the band think when you, when you showed it to them? Everybody thought that it was a solid just little rock song. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, this, it's not this complex, fascinating musical challenge. It's this easy, concise, short, catchy rock song. Mm -hmm. I mean, for us, like, yeah, okay, it's cool. Let's put that in the pile. Why not? <laughs> we don't have anything to lose by putting it in the pile. But it was on, it was no one's like, it was no one's like must have song. <laughs> like, I thought it, I thought it was fine. But it was. I thought it also it it wouldn't matter if it made the record or not. Do you remember what producer Mark Trombino thought of it when you first played it for him? Yeah, he thought it was the same. Yeah, you know, at the time I didn't think it was as like tough and exciting as a song like Bleed American, mm -hmm. but that didn't mean that it, there wasn't a place for it. I think what happens is like you get sort of lost as a creator when when something happens easily. Like there's this perception that it's not worth as much if you don't struggle. <laughs> to solve some some wrenching puzzle with it. You know what I mean? Like if a song just falls into your lap in two hours and it's done, 
there's a sense that it's not worth as much as the song that took you like a, like three weeks to write like lyrics for or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In our heads, like middle was just so easy that we didn't it didn't have that sense of like we, we had no idea what it could mean to somebody outside of our little nuclear group. And sometimes it's it's those songs that aren't these complex musical compositions. They're, they're just these ideas that go out there. I've seen it so many times on this show. Yeah, we just it was just another song. It was just this pop song we wrote that ends up, you know, just uh, taking yeah. taking off taking off with the fans. I want to jump into the song now. There's a 12 second uh, just a guitar intro that's kind of mimicking the chorus. It's only 12 seconds and then you're into this first verse. Uh, and I'm going to set up the lyrics here and you can uh, go through it with us. Hey, don't write yourself off yet. It's only in your head you feel left out or looked down on. Just try your best. Try everything you can. And don't you worry what they tell themselves when you're away. And on the second half of this, when we get to the just try your best line, it's subtle. But another guitar comes in there playing a higher register. It's kind of palm muted. Just try your best. Try everything you can. And don't you worry what they tell themselves. It just kind of builds right there, which is really cool. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more of that in a second. But these these lyrics, just set, set them up for us if you can. I think on our Static Prevails album, we thought we were so forward thinking that we listed a, a band email address <laughs> that we would, uh, you know, yeah, write us. <laughs> you know, like, because like, I don't think people remember, like, back in those days, man, like, there were, you had a P.O. box. Yeah, yeah. Bands had P.O. boxes. <laughs> For correspondence, and you know, we I think we had one of those at at a, at a point. Yeah, people actually used to have to try to get, you know send you their grievances that way. Now it was just uh, through their fi- yeah. through their fingertips. You wrote the <laughs> band's PO box, and you got if they were a bigger van, like they would send you a newsletter <laughs> in the mail. I used to get the Dead Milkman newsletter yeah. when they were doing that. So this girl wrote our our email. And I happened to read it and she was like, uh, I think she was a, maybe a high school kid. And and she was complaining about, or she was telling us that she liked our band and she was getting picked on by the punk rock kids because she wasn't punk enough. Oh, that's always fun. And I thought <laughs> that's so ridiculous because like, that's so the opposite of what punk rock I thought is like inclusiveness. Yes. Acceptance, like encouraging the freak flag to be flown. And I just thought it was like, this is so not worth your time. These, these, this, these, this click of, of other girls that are giving you shit for not being punk enough is so not worth your time to be upset over. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. This is the like their approval is the wrong target to be chasing here. Yeah, and that's interesting because I I never knew that about this lyric. I did I researched the song. I didn't didn't see that anywhere online. But these lyrics are simplistic enough to where, and I think that's why this song just resonated. Uh, they you can just feel them. It, you can it can mean something to whatever you're kind of going through in life. Who who hasn't felt left out? Yeah, it's funny. It's like the the lyrics to the middle are literal. Yes, a hundred percent literal. <laughs> They're hyper literal. There's really no uh, innuendos here, but at the same time, uh, it could be construed as a love song in a sense, because now we get into the chorus, which the chorus is great because it's only 35 seconds and you're into the chorus. That's quick. Don't bore us. Get to the chorus. There you go. There you go. Yeah, of course. Uh, It just takes some time. Little girl, you're in the middle of the ride. Everything, everything will be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right. All right. And uh, what you just said, it's, 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 pretty literal but all these years i just 
I don't know. I just thought maybe, like I said, it could have been a love song. You're talking about a girl, and and uh, I like I like the inspiration behind it. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't have a chorus for it at first. Like the chorus happened last. I had the rest of the song put together, and um, somewhere around here, I have this autographed uh, picture of Bruce Springsteen. And I needed a chorus, and I thought, like, okay, what would the boss do? <laughs> that from high fi- that scene from High Fidelity popped into my head because I have this autographed Bruce Springsteen thing. I was like, what would the boss do here? He'd say something like, <laughs> like what the chorus of the middle came to be. Yeah, no, that's that's me trying to be Bruce Springsteen, filling in the gaps there. Did the chorus come before you got in the studio and you were tracking the record, or? Oh yeah, I mean, I had a I had a full demo of the song done before I brought it to the other guys with my little home home setup. Do you remember how different that demo was to when what you got in the studio? Was it same, different? Was there different parts? Was there? It's pretty close. Pretty close. I mean, the drums are performed way better, but <laughs> it's pretty close to. There wasn't a whole lot to do with it, you know. It's like this. Like, what do you what are you gonna do mm-hmm. to develop this thing? I mean, maybe maybe like the just like little things, like the cadence, bum 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 bum, like at the out of the solo into the verse three. Sure. Little things like that kind of come together, but the the general structure, the arrangement, what you hear today is what is pretty close to what it started out like. No, and I think it it just it hits you over the head, and it's it it's a it's a hit song, and I think that uh, part of that is is that you know in my notes here, <laughs> there's songs where I have a million notes. I don't have too too much because there really isn't. It's really straightforward, and that's for this song. That's a good thing. You know, we get into the second verse here. Uh, hey, you know, they're all the same. You know, you're doing better on your own. And then here's a call and response. So this the song is building a little here. There's an on your own backing vocal that comes in there. So don't buy in. Live right now. Yeah, just be yourself. It doesn't matter if it's good enough. Again, good enough comes back with a call and response backing vocal for someone else. And I had noted here that throughout this whole verse, not just the second half, that palm muted higher register guitar is there the whole time. Hey, you know they're all the same. You know you're doing better on your own. So don't buy in. Live right now. Yeah, something that we started getting into when we were working on Clarity is kind of what's become our go-to overdub structure for developing the song as the arrangement goes by. And that's usually, you know, something in the verse that will happen in like the B section that provides a little bit more attention as it's going on. And then um, your verse two kind of, it shouldn't be as big as your chorus for sure, but it's got to be, there has to be something happening in it that gives it a little bit more energy than what your first verse was. And so the higher palm mute part that comes in halfway through verse one, we just thought we'd start with that. And that would be like just now what verse two, the rhythm bed of overdubs is is what verse two is. And so, but but then like, then what else, what are you going to do that's different after that? And like, you know, I guess you run a delay on the vocals to fill the, the, the gaps, the vocal holes there. So you're just sort of like adding on little bits of ear candy as you're going to have similar sections be more 
impactful. Mm-hmm. Do you remember who thought of that, having the call and response, the backing vocals? That would, was that, that was a, probably Mark. Mark came up with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost positive that was Mark. And yeah, what, what's cool, though, is it took me probably two or three times. I kept rewinding it the other night as I'm going through this song, and I, and I go through them with a fine-tooth comb. And I mean, how many times have I heard this track? Uh, hundreds of times. It's just It still gets played all over. But to really zone in and hone in on something, and I'm like, why does the first verse feel different? You know, and then because it is, and then it finally, yeah. Well, it wasn't even the the call and response, obviously that, but it was that subtle. You know, it was that guitar only coming in the half halfway through the first verse, but the second time, it's all it's all there, which is just awesome. When you introduce something, people have to adjust their expectations. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield, and this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. So, you know, if a song starts out with just like two, like a guitar that's palm muted and someone hears that, they, okay, this is my bass line, you know, then any sort of like small thing you do on top of that has an impact. You know, like if you were going to start out a song just playing acoustic guitar and really quiet, it's like digging in and strumming a full chord can be a dynamic lift just like 90,000 saturated guitars coming in. <laughs> People have to adjust their expectations when something is presented to them and then within and then you can play around with that just up just as much as you just as little as you can Mm -hmm. i feel just as little as you can to get the impact that you want is the best way to go well and it's funny when you talk about heaviness you know when i was a young kid i thought everything had to be like metallica 100 miles an hour had to be these huge guitars and sometimes heavy sometimes heavy subtle and that eighth note guitar that palm muted guitar that comes in that second verse for the whole thing it's subtle but it just lifts that second verse of what you were talking about before we set up for chorus two and i'm only going to read the first half because it's the same both times this is now a, a double chorus it just takes some time little girl you're in the middle of the ride Everything, everything will be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right, all right. Uh, That repeats twice. And then we do something here, and I didn't even think about this till I I was (laughs) digging in and analyzing the song, Jim. And it just perfectly sets up where you go with this guitar solo, but there's a woo that you do. It's very, you know, spirited, a spirited woo. It'll be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right, all right. Was that something you just did off the cuff that ended up just making the record or was that something that was intentional? Yeah, I think I just did it like on one of the takes in the chorus. <laughs> okay. And I was like, all right. Yeah, that's a woo kind of part. Let's woo it up. Right, because coming again, you wouldn't have heard that, I don't believe, on Static Prevails or on Clarity. No. No, right? <laughs> no, I mean, like on, on Static Prevails, like. Those are the days where a tambourine was weird. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm I'm glad you said tambourine. I want to talk about that. I had the I, before I forget. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Before I forget, I don't think I've ever heard a more perfectly placed 
tambourine. It's kind of panned off to the right speaker, especially in the verses. It just keeps the song kind of chugging along as if the song, the song doesn't need to chug along. It's, this is only two minutes and 46 seconds, and it feels even shorter than that, this song. There's there's no fat on this song at all. That uh, tambourine part, do you remember when that came in? Because it's, it's so integral to me to the song. Oh, pretty. That came in on the demo. It did. Like that. That was always there. That's really. That's really you know, cool. Now it just, making clear making clarity. We we discovered like how much extra percussion can really help your dynamics you're trying to achieve. We just got really into that. So we we were. It was on our radar for Bleed American. Like yeah, you know, eighth note tambourine to kind of like give this give this a little bit more energy. Sixteenth note stuff in the bridge. I mean the solo because. Yeah, no, that's I, rad. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't imagine this song with, without that tambourine. It's, it's one of those. Again, there's other songs like yeah. the tambourine doesn't need to be there in this song. It's you take it or leave it. But this one, it is just an integral part to it. Yeah, actually, we have our, we have an extra musician that plays live with us, okay. and that's what he does during that section. He has a tambourine. You know, it's like <laughs> that's one of the elements we said. Okay, this has to be there. So that's what he does. No, it does. I, like I said, I've never heard. A, I can't think of another song where maybe, uh, you know, some some Motown stuff that if you take the tambourine out. It's not the same song, but this has to be there. This guitar solo is so different up to this point for you guys. I, it's just one of the most tasteful guitar solos. It's just it is perfect. It's almost got this 50s rock and roll kind of rockabilly vibe to it almost. Almost, there's no bridge in this song. The guitar solo is almost like the, the bridge, the departure. It's 23 seconds long. Was that on your original demo? I don't know if like the solo was, but that the length of the solo was. Mm-hmm. I knew something was going to go there, but um, it, yeah, I guess it's basically like another chorus of the progression. Yeah. Was there ever thought or on the demo, was there any lyrics there or melodies there? No, it it was always going to be instrumental lead part. Didn't know exactly what I was going to do yet, but I knew like, okay, guitar solo here. And is that something you remember taking a while to craft? Did you sit across from Mark uh, in the studio? Yeah, we did that in the studio. And I think it was... It's really long. It is. You know? it's a like 20, it's, the, it's, the song's only 246. The, the, the solo's 23 seconds. So yeah. it is very long, but it's just, it's such an interesting part in a, in a, in a somewhat, and I, 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 when I use the word simple, I don't mean it derogatory, but it's a, in this simple kind of pop song, there's this departure that's needed, and I feel it's just, it's, it's so perfect. And when you finally got it tracked, did it feel right? Because it, it's, so, it's such a different feel for you guys, that guitar solo. Yeah, you know, I just, I think I think I just took it and what I do with like any guitar solo really is like there's theme and variation I come up with something by noodling around that sounds like a basic thing and then okay so if you play it twice what happens the second time where does it go and with a song like the middle where you ha- where it's so long I basically do like a theme and variation of like a lower kind of faster hammer on pull off riff <laughs> but after that there's still like you know, there's still like 15 seconds of this solo I got to do. <laughs> so like, I guess, I guess the thought was like, okay, so it needs to build. What do you do to build? You're either going to, you're going to increase in some capacity here. So I went with pitch. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it basically, it works up to like a different register and then it ends in like a higher register. So 
is basically like finding finding themes that you can make variations of while ascending for the length of the the time you got. Yeah, well, we as musicians know, Jim, that there are times in the studio when there are ghost players. There's someone, the, the producer, someone played something. I, Captain Midnight. Yeah, I knew <laughs> I knew you were half the Kiss records in the 70s were played by other people, but I knew you guys were accomplished players. You guys were always rippers. However, I had never heard this style come out of you, and I remember seeing you on the Pop Disaster Tour opening for Green Day and Blink. Now, I was living in Atlanta at the time, and I remember you went into the middle, and I'm like, all right, I want to hear this solo, and you killed it. You ripped it. I, I, I was it's, so. It sounds it sounds a lot harder than it is. It's just like there's a lot of notes that happen, but really, it's a simple gag to to make happen. Right, but it is unique, and again, it's so different from what you had done prior to that. That I was just and and you you killed it live. I was just like, wow, it was just. It was really really good. Um, coming in now, right out of the solo, we come into the third verse, and. There's like this synthesizer part, or is it some kind of guitar? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Synth- synthesizer like a- or guitar pedal? There's like a. Hey, don't write yourself off we call that the popcorn synth. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, whose idea was that? Because that really adds a cool element here. Again, that, that it just it's another another piece that, that that's um, moving the song along. I think that's I can't I don't remember if that was me or if it was Mark. But there was the, it needs something here. And I think that just happened on keyboard day. Uh huh. We reserved like a period of time at the end of overdubs for, for just extra stuff. Sure, sure. And that probably came about during that time. It's funny because I can't think of anything else that could be there. And, and I, when I heard it, I was like, and again, I've heard this song hundreds and hundreds of, of times. But I had to go back to the beginning of the song. I'm listening for it. I'm like, wait, was it there in the second verse? Was it there? Nope. It only comes in right there, which is which is genius. Uh, the third verse is, hey, don't write yourself off yet. It's only in your head you feel left out with that call and response or look down on. Just do your best with a call and response on just do your best. Do everything you can. And don't you worry what their bitter hearts, uh, bitter hearts is repeated, are going to say. So there's elements of the first verse here, but it changes on the back half. Yeah, that's something that, happens a lot on bleed american where it's sort of it's kind of odd how often that happens and it's odd that we don't do that we haven't really done that since you know like where your verses are repeated it just makes sense for a song like this like there's how many thousands of songs that have like verse one that kind of comes back in a subtler way for verse three. Mm-hmm. It just felt like this is the song that does that. Well there's no pre chorus to this song and at the same time it's obvious what the chorus of this song is. There's no denying that. But this, these verses are almost, I can't think of another word, they're almost a chorus in and of themselves. You ever gone and see bands play where the chorus or the verses are sung just as loud as the chorus? And, and, and that's what this is. These verses are so damn catchy that when it comes back in for this third time, it almost lends itself to have that same lyric for familiarity. There's that aspect of it too, the familiarity when you're, repeating a, a motif or a theme or in this case a lyric when it comes by and feels familiar you're able to connect with it more because you have a, you have some you have a reference that it's coming up against even if you heard the song for the first time sure you sure. know a couple things i love in this verse is the back half on the just do your best the do everything you can in the bitter hearts the call and response are every time there do your best So 
now you're really you're really getting it. It happens more than any other time in the song. And after you say or look down on before you say just do your best, the stereo eighth note guitars come in. Just do your best. Yeah. And again, they're not pushed super forward, but they're there and you feel them. And again, I'm listening to this. I'm like, why does this feel different? And then it hit me. It's like, because the stereo guitars came in and I, and I went back. Nope, they're not there in the second verse of the first verse. That is really cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, like I said before, each each of the verses have to feel like there's a reason for them happening. And for, for us, that means there's something extra going on in there. You know, like yeah. with a song like The Middle, there's there's a there's a ceiling of how much extra you can put on there before you start taking away from what makes the song cool, which is it's very simple. Was there ever any discussion of giving a little more information in the chorus lyric? Because we get to the last chorus here and it's another double chorus, but it's the same exact lyrics and it works perfectly. I can't imagine there being other lyrics, but was there ever that discussion or on your demo, was there other lyrics? No, it's it was always um, one set of lyric consistent for the choruses. Okay. And I'm going to read uh, the half of this. It, it, it doubles. I won't re- read the whole thing, but uh, for the last time here, it just takes some time. Little girl, you're in the middle of the ride. Everything, everything will be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right. All right. And that's how it ends. This I love, you know, be all right, all right. Just abruptly ends. That's the end of the song. There's nothing. Everything will be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right. Was it always like that too, or did you ever have a fade yeah. out? Or- yeah. Yeah, it was always the brick wall ending. Yeah. No, it's it works perfectly. When you're in the studio, you're cutting Bleed American and you know, you get near the end. It's maybe getting towards the the day where you're going to do some keyboards and some some other wacky percussion or that third harmony you haven't uh, thought of yet. It's it's one of the last days in the studio. You're hearing the tracks back. Where did the middle sit for you guys at that point? You know, again, like there's nothing wrong with this song. It's cool. Did you know it was a hit? It can advance to the next round. <laughs> of course, we only we only had eleven songs, so it's not like we right. could cut much. I think you know maybe maybe if we had like fourteen songs that we recorded, middle would have middle, middle would have like gotten cut. <laughs> where, where in the process did DreamWorks come along and pick up this record? So as we were making Bleed American, we wanted to get a head start on who would put it out. So we just basically made contacts with with everyone that we could think of to come check out what we were working on as we were working on it. And we had some label people come down and check it out. You know, it was it was kind of funny. Like we had some people come down and like we'd be hanging out with them and they would give us a pitch like like they were going to offer us like a development deal. You know? <laughs> Been there. <laughs> yeah, and then we play them like, you know, Bleed American praise chorus in middle and they're like, "Okay, we're not doing a development deal. Like we're like I'll be back in tomorrow with the president of the label." So we knew we had something that was going to be good mm-hmm. um or that other people were thinking is good. We didn't have a manager at that point, so we thought, "Okay, we we need someone to help us here otherwise we're going to be in a situation where we have we're going to be that band that gets screwed by the label. I often wonder how many people at Capitol were doing a one-legged ass-kicking contest when uh, when well, this record came out. <laughs> there wasn't many there wasn't many people from Capitol that were around. Yeah, you like, know what you're was, right that, a lot yeah, most of them left. We we were gone by that point. We had jumped ship. We yeah. went, we went to Fat Records. Yeah, yeah. So it's like toward the end of Clarity, our A&R uh, Craig was gone. Sure. Uh Gary Ger- Gary Gersh was gone. Mm-hmm. I think only Maybe Perry Watts Russell had an R was the only person that was around. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't even know if the college, I don't even know if like uh, Steve Nice 
was yeah. still in college, or, at college. I don't even know if Phil Costello was at radio. I know. I, yeah, I don't think Phil Costello was there anymore. Yeah. Even so, it was like all these people had just like gone, and there was nobody left to champion us. You know, sellers of five thousand records for sure. Well, <laughs> so when, it didn't like. Yeah, yeah, you can go. <laughs> That's fine. We don't care. When did you know, undeniable? And I'm going to say before the radio station started picking it up because I know in uh, 2002, I believe or 2001, this was the most played song in, it was in 2002, the most played song on radio in Canada. I mean, this song went through the roof. It was everywhere. There's 73 million YouTube hits on this song. It's just incredible. When did you know? Was it a label execs? Was it friends or family that heard, and people kept saying the middle, the middle, the middle. It wasn't until like long after we were done touring on Bleed American that I realized like actually how big it was. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Because at the time, and it, 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 you know, at the time, you're just going, you're just trying to stay sane and play these shows. Yeah. And you're not really letting a whole lot of that in mm-hmm. because it's ridiculous. Right. And we had just come from nothing. Yes. Yes. We had just come from absolutely nothing, and now like TRL <laughs> has has yeah. our video. How this happened? You know, like it was a lot like when we first started working with Craig and we had come, we went to LA and when, you know, toured the Capitol building for the first time, mm-hmm. it was like, none of this is real. I remember Craig taking Zach and I to a Dodgers game while they were, you know, we, our bands were getting courted by Capitol, you know, and I'm just sitting there going, there's a label exec that flew me out here. Cause he wants my band. I it was, it, it was all surreal. You can't, you can't yeah, try to communicate you that. You don't take it seriously, you know, and especially you how can't. young we were, especially how young we it's, were. Yeah. It's sort of, um, it's crazy because it's so different from your life, but also like that's a defensive mechanism <laughs> to not take it seriously. So when it doesn't pan out or doesn't, you know, or it or whatever, like you're not let down by it. Well, and that was like our whole time touring on Bleed American. It was like, <laughs> this is crazy. Here we are at MTV. Um, yeah. On the, wow, this is weird. On the biggest tour of the summer with Green Day and Blink, it was, you know, yeah. and I, I, I said at the top of the show that, I love a great success story. Without sounding weird, I love the middle. I think it's great. There's probably 20 other Jimmy Eat World songs that I would have loved to have done today. I felt we had to go with the jugular, not so much from the song, which is amazing, but for the story behind it. It's the success story. Always rooted for you guys. Uh, I, you know, I'm sure you, you've had people, you know, you, you always, when you're in a band, you open yourself up to criticism, but no one I know in, in the scene ever when this hit had a bad thing to say about you guys. We were all happy for you and stoked. Thanks, man. Yeah, I I definitely felt that. I think when we started working with major labels, our scene colleagues were more like just kind of like wanting to make sure we didn't get screwed. Yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't like you sold out. It was like, hey man, just be careful. Like we're we're rooting for you to succeed, but you know, <laughs> it's dangerous yeah. out there. Absolutely. Well, uh, listen, Jim, we're we're gonna wrap up. I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to to be on the show. And is there anything you'd like to to plug uh, solo, Jimmy World? What do you got going on? I don't know. <laughs> it remains to be seen. That's we, an answer. Just, uh, That's an answer. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, we're gonna get working on on new stuff this year. And uh, besides these Phoenix Session concert films, I don't really have much to to say. Hopefully, hopefully after this, uh, after I don't know when you're, this is gonna air, but this Friday is our clarity live stream it's not really a live stream but now it's on the internet so you you just kind of reflexively call it a live stream gotcha but yeah we made concert films of us performing whole albums and 
it's it's going to be an ongoing series. Maybe we'll do some more of those. Maybe we'll do Bleed America in this year. I don't know. Rock on. We'll check out Jimmy World's live stream. And uh, again, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thanks, Chris. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Chris to Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is submit your song and bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured band are the Rafters from Blackburn, England. You can find them on Instagram at the Rafters Band UK, and you can find their music on all the streaming sites. The Rafters are Nathan Griffiths on lead vocals and guitar, Ryan McDermott on bass and vocals, Joe Roscoe on guitar and vocals, and Josh Greenwood on the drums. Here's a snippet of their song, Reasons. Chris and Chris. I think that's the hardest we ever labored over deciding which song to break down by an artist ever. You and I went back and forth and we narrowed it down to, for me, this is heaven in the middle. And we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth on which song to do. And we eventually landed on the middle. And after that episode, I'm glad we did. Well, you know, I mean... As I said at the end of the episode, there are a ton of Jimmy Eat World songs that I would love to talk about. Such a great band. I'm 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 such a fan, but I just felt the 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 rags to riches story with this one was just too good. I just know what they went through. They were the the black sheep of Capitol Records. They at the same time were critics darlings, and they had all these guys in bands that just touted them, just loved everything that they did, and uh, to, to to seek out on their own and go make this record. In independently and then shop it and to have what happened uh kudos to them that story is amazing as is this band obviously i think the bleed american and clarity and futures i mean this band's made so many flawless albums that even narrowing down an album let alone a song is hard uh you'd be hard pressed to find a four-piece rock band such as my own that wasn't very, very much influenced by Jimmy World. I was reminded by my bandmate Steve that when our album Action came out, back when there were still compact discs in record stores, that there was a sticker on the front of ours that said, for fans of, and it was like Jimmy World and 
I think Green Day or something like that. I don't know that we even decided which bands they put on there. But yeah, I mean, in our world of music, it's hard to find bands that weren't influenced one way or another by Jimmy Eat World. No, and it was it was interesting when when Jim was talking about, you know, I had I had asked him at the end of the episode, so when did you know this was a hit? And when did you know that it just it was just this became this massive thing? And and he I think he honestly answered with what he said. And he said, it wasn't until like after the touring cycle was over that I was able to reflect on it. And I totally related to that when you're in that bubble and you're out there and you're touring and the press that they were doing. They were on that pop disaster tour that summer with Green Day and Blink. When you're in that bubble, that tornado, I call it, and it's just things are happening a mile a minute. The manager's calling, the press person's calling. You got to go here. Now you're doing a video. Some Sometimes you don't have time to, uh, to 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 sit around and sm- smell the roses, so to speak. You know, the the Mark Hoppus mentioned that talking about the success of What's My Age. He, if there was one thing he could do is go back in time and soak it all in and enjoy it because it, you you can't when it's happening that fast. It's very difficult. Something I was thinking about during this episode was. That word emo gets tossed around like, you know, it's it's almost lost complete. People will call anything. People probably call the Foo Fighters an emo band at this point. Like everything is just emo. It's just a word that's overused. But back before it became that, I think Jimmy World were some of the bordered that line of the first wave of it and really became the face of the second i don't know what the waves necessarily are they're definitely (laughs) forefathers of what that that real term is and i know basically they're just a rock band jimmy world's just a really great rock band but it's funny that term emo gets thrown around short for emotional but what music isn't emotional that's a good argument for uh i'm trying to think of like what isn't emotional i don't know uh Polka music. I'm sure. I'm sure polka music's even emotional. Death metal. Uh, <laughs> th- there's emotion behind that, <laughs> there, isn't there? Yeah, there, it's raw emotion for sure. No, I I, I think they might have been one of the first bands. That's a good point, Chris. That I heard the term emo, and you said it a moment ago for our listeners that don't know, it's uh, short for emotional. And music's emotional in general. I never understood that term myself, but they were one of the first bands, and um, it may have even been tossed around with hot water music for the first time around that time, and and. As I mentioned, I'll never forget Chuck talking to you. He was just just going crazy. You know those guys? Like freaked out. Just could not believe that we were on the same label as Jimmy Eat World. Hey, I was trying to text you during the episode to say I wanted to know from Jim. Maybe we could find out after the fact. But I wanted to know if the girl who wrote the letter that they ended up writing as being the inspiration for the middle... Uh, if she knows, <laughs> if she knows that this song is about her letter, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I I wish I would have seen your text come in. I, I definitely would have yeah. would have I definitely would have asked that. Yeah, I it, make, it makes you wonder because again, this is just uh, one of many many fans that wrote that that band that Jim uh, you know singled out and decided to write a song about. It, it was really cool. Hey, uh, I like that we picked the middle because that's one of the points you brought up to me when we were deciding which song to go with that. It really is like a rags to riches story of a band. They were signed to a major label. And I, I mean, I mean this with all due respect. I think the people say that clarity flopped somehow, which I can't dude. Can you imagine making that album and it not becoming huge? (laughs) I just, I thought about that so much since I knew that Jim was coming on here. It's like, wow, you released this album, which, you know, goes on to be a, I don't know. It's one of my all-time favorite albums, Clarity is. I mean, I, Bleed American's up there for me, too. But uh, to then get dropped from a label, kind of start from scratch, self-fund this album, and then just have this song 
take off and just propel them into superstardom. That's just such a good story in itself. They, they were ahead of their time. I said it to Jim. They they were. People didn't get it as a whole. For the ma- the masses didn't get clarity at the time. It's a kind of revisionist history where people can go back and say, oh, that album. But, you know, uh, it's kind of like I, I mentioned this to you uh, uh, earlier. It's kind of like uh, Weezer's Pinkerton. That record became a success right. years later. It was a commercial flop at the time. Uh, nobody really knew outside of certain critics and musicians about Jimmy Eat World and they believed in themselves. Mark Trombino, uh, to his credit, really believed in the band and they went and they, they made this record and again, you you can't cry sellout. These are just songs that they wrote. They had no label telling them what to write. You got to go in a pop direction. If anything, they would have made a crazier record than Clarity and they stripped it back, which is very difficult to do when you're that good of a band to write these kind of arrangements that Jimmy Eat World can. Yeah, it is crazy that this is such a straightforward song for a band with so many intricate crazy songs dude could you imagine breaking down goodbye sky harbor oh well <laughs> yeah you need you need it uh, probably two or three episodes to do that track 16 minutes and eight seconds long <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean granted that that whatever probably 12 12 or 13 minutes of that is outro <laughs> yeah <laughs> but still just amazing ahead of their time songwriters uh so it's really awesome that they achieved mainstream success because I can't think of a band that deserved it more. And something else I picked up on that I thought was really funny, and I love Jim's honesty, is when I said to him, I said, so, you know, were you just in the vocal booth and you decided to go woo before the solo? And, you know, and, or was that intentionally? He goes, no, I think I just did it and just ended up making the... It's one of those happy accidents just end up on record, you know, because it's just... You would never have heard that on Static Prevails or Clarity, that woo, and it's just so fun-spirited and it just works before the solo. I think it's great. There's nothing like a great woo. <laughs> I'll tell you what else is great, Chris. What else is great? This month's fundraiser. Why are you taking my job? That's my job to do the segues. You do do the segues. Why did I do that? I don't know why you did that, but tell them about the fundraiser. Ah, oh, geez. All right. This month's fundraiser is the Superhero Center for Autism. It's a nonprofit organization in the Rockford, Illinois area, offering support, education, and resources for individuals with autism and other special needs and their families. Uh, this is for a wonderful cause. If you could donate anything, please head over to KristaMakesADifference.com and, uh, and help them out. They're uh, uh, an amazing, amazing organization. And also, you and I were talking about Rockford right before we started recording, how I played there once on a Super Bowl Sunday in front of not that many people. (laughs) And you've played some great shows in Rockford and former guest of the show, Rick Nielsen and the band Cheap Trick, you informed me, are from Rockford. That's right. Uh, Rockford, Illinois used to have a, a wonderful punk scene in the 90s. We used to have, Les and Jake used to have great, great shows there. And yeah, something else we want to let you know about. People have been asking about advertising here on Krista Makes a Podcast. If you'd like more info, shoot an email to advertising at soundtalentmedia.com for all the info if you'd like to advertise on the podcast. Once again, that's advertising at soundtalentmedia.com. And if you haven't already, please give me a follow at Instagram at less than Chris D. I'd love to have you follow me and I promise to uh, to try to make you laugh. I, I don't know if I'm going to make you laugh. But I'm going to try my best to make you laugh. Just keep and posting I'll... pictures of your, keep posting your high school <laughs> and middle school pictures on there and that's, that's all we need. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I had some interesting haircuts, let's put it that way. And I want to thank this week's guest, Jim Adkins from Jimmy Eat World for a wonderful episode and we'll see you next week. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. 
We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.